0: We'll pick up there, leading into chapter 9. And I encourage you to allow this morning's teaching to unfold. We unfold the word together, and it really needs to unfold to get us to the substance of really what I want to talk about at the very end of the teaching. You know, I often joke around about after like 45, 50 minutes, I say, okay, now we can start. (laughs) But truly, we're going to spend most of our time in the run-up to what is significant here at the end. Isaiah chapter eight, and I'll just read ahead. Verse 21 says, "'They will pass through the land hard-pressed "'and famished, and it will turn out "'when they are hungry, they will be enraged "'and curse their king and their God "'as they face upward. "'And then they will look to the earth, "'and behold, distress and darkness, "'the gloom of anguish.'" And they will be driven away into darkness. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And so, Father, this morning, I pray you would shine the light of truth on your word. And Spirit, you would teach us and and help us to grasp these things at a spirit level, a deep level, to have understanding, yes, Lord, but as we so often pray, revelation. Because revelation changes a life. And that's our desire, Lord, that we would be even more aligned with you, walking after you and seeking you. And I pray, Father, for the comfort and the encouragement of your word this morning to lift us up, because these are dark times that we're living in right now. And I pray, oh Jesus, the light of the world, would you shine on us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like many of you, uh, my family is deep into the annual Christmas movies. We have a list, a slate of Christmas movies, if you will, that we, that we love to watch. And, and some of my kids are more um, intentional than others. We have to watch every single one. I've already been asked the question over this weekend, are we going to get through them all in time? You know, Christmas is coming. Are we, we still have a few movies we've got to watch, you know, and it becomes very regimented. And... But we have a list, and on that list, there are a couple that stand at the very top for me. Two Christmas movies that I, I love more than any others. One I've mentioned before is The Homecoming, and that is a Christmas story. That's the very first Waltons family special that ended up spawning the that series, The Waltons, back in the 70s into the early 80s. And it's a, it's a charming story, really a, a beautiful little story. If you've never seen it, that's your homework. In fact, I'll give you two movies to watch for homework this week. Watch The Waltons' Homecoming, and Consider that. And and then the second one, and it's at the very top of the list, and it is for many people, though it wasn't when it first came out, and that's It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life, the poignant story of George Bailey, right, played played by Jimmy Stewart, uh, living in the fictional town of Bedford Falls, New York, having grown up there, wanting to get out of there, but he sees all of his grander hopes and dreams fall off one by one, by one, as he faithfully serves and advances and supports other people. And you see him doing the right thing, but the right thing is hard. If you've seen the movie, you know that he gets more and more despairing the further away his dreams get from him. He can't see the blessing that he is to so many lives, though you see it as you're watching the movie, he doesn't see it until he comes to a point of ultimate despair. As it turns out, This was Jimmy Stewart's favorite of all the movies he ever did. This is the one, if he had to choose one, he was asked that many times, he said, it's a wonderful life. The most moving scene for me takes place in Martini's Bar on Christmas Eve, where crisis has hit. And George has left his home and he's made his way over to this bar and he's seated at the counter, tears streaming down his face as he shudders in agony, praying in utter despair. But here's the thing I wanted to tell you. Jimmy Stewart wasn't acting. In that scene, the tears were real. He wrote in an article back in Guideposts, 1977, describing what took place. In fact, except for the line where he says, I'm not a praying man, he was acting in that line because Jimmy Stewart actually was a praying man. He was a faithful, lifelong Presbyterian in church every Sunday. Believed in, worshiped the Lord. That's always cool to hear about a Hollywood star. Rare these days. But, but the emotions and the tears and the trembling distress at that counter in that scene These were all too real. He wrote his own words, George is unaware that most of the people in town are arduously praying for him. In this scene, at the lowest point in George Bailey's life, Frank Capra was shooting a long shot of me, slumped in despair. In agony, I raised my eyes, and following the script, I pled, God, God, dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, Show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, God. Gives me every time. Stuart writes, As I said those words, I felt the loneliness and hopelessness of people who had nowhere to turn. My eyes filled with tears, and I broke down sobbing. This was not planned at all, but the power of that prayer, the realization that our Father in heaven is there to help the hopeless had reduced me to tears watch it again if you've already seen it this year even just that scene because what his heart felt was absolutely true the bible tells us in john chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And that is our historical problem, that the darkness has not comprehended the light of Jesus. And so even today, the darkness deepens, the lost get more lost, the broken more broke. The despairing continue to despair, and that's what happens when people turn off the light, when people reject the only source of hope that we have. That's what had happened in Israel. So let's talk about the backstory a little bit to the whole child was born to us, the son was given to us. It's such a bright comment on the page, but there's a lead-up to this. You see, in the time of Isaiah when Hezekiah was king or about to be king, the days of Isaiah, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah had split. They had for several hundred years now. Two different kingdoms of the Jewish people, but you've got the kingdom of Judah, really where Judaism came from, and then, or the name Jews. And then you have the northern kingdom of Israel, and the northern kingdom of Israel was in dire straits. It was about to be wiped off the map as a nation. The 10 northern tribes, if you know your history, were about to be completely taken out. Little Judah would be left for a few hundred more years until Babylon would come and take them into captivity. So the northern kingdom of Israel was in bad shape when the Lord prophesied through Isaiah chapter eight, go all the way back to verse five. He says, again, the Lord spoke further to me saying, "Inasmuch as as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in resin, And the son of Remaliah, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over its channels and go over all its banks, and then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will even reach to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, first of all, I like that. It will fill your land, O Emmanuel. This is Emmanuel's land we're talking about. This has always been Emmanuel's land. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the entirety of Israel is Emmanuel's land. It is Jesus' inheritance, and he will retake it at a time yet future, though I suspect not far off. But it's really interesting, the picture that's being painted, it's it's very poetic as Isaiah is speaking. He says, Emmanuel's land is gonna be taken over by the king of Assyria. The Assyrians are gonna come in, and they they did, they would, and completely wipe out the northern kingdom. Why? Because the northern kingdom was the first of the 12 tribes. Those 10 tribes were the first to reject what Isaiah describes here, what the Lord says, the gently flowing waters of Shaloah. Well, what's that? Does Shaloah sound at all familiar? Like Siloam, as in the pool of Siloam. As in a place in Jerusalem, Shaloah is the Gihon spring that fed Jerusalem. And it was the site of the Davidic coronations. That's where, where Solomon was coronated as king. What the Lord is saying is you have rejected the gently flowing stream of the line of David the Davidic stream, my king, my established rule, you've rejected that northern kingdom of Israel, and indeed they had. And he says, you're rejoicing in Rezin. What's that mean? The the, the people were trusting in the tributary king, Rezin, the king of Aram, the Aramaeans, who was a tributary king to the king of Assyria. And so he was the buffer zone, Aram was, between Assyria and Israel. So the northern Israelites were trusting in, and King Ahab, you may remember that nasty name, but he was trusting in King Rezin, and they were thinking that together they could throw off the might of the king of Assyria, but now the Lord says you're going to be flooded by the Euphrates. Well, the Euphrates was the border river of Assyria that great river that here is a picture of the Assyrians flooding into the land, he says, even up to the neck, the head is Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, as he becomes king in short order just after this, is gonna find his kingdom surrounded by Assyrians and there will be a miraculous rescue at that time of the southern kingdom of Judah. Are you with me? It's important to track these things So within a few years of this prophecy that the floodwaters of the Euphrates, Assyria, are going to sweep into the land and bowl over and destroy completely, wiping out the northern kingdom of Israel, that happened 722 B.C. Emmanuel's land fell into utter darkness. Verse nine: Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered and give ear all remote places of the earth. In other words, everyone learn from this. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. He repeats. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Or again, literally right there, Emmanuel. So now it's the second time he's said, Emmanuel. Devise a plan, make all your proposals, Gird yourself up. Try to be strong. You're gonna be shattered. You cannot stand against Emmanuel. And what he's saying to the nation of Israel then and to the world today is our best efforts, our best plans, our best proposals, even our military armaments are useless. Only the plans of Emmanuel, God with us, will ever stand. Our only hope. In the second Psalm, verse one, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. O oh, earthlings, O oh, people. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Proverbs 21, verse 30, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Emmanuel, God with us is our only hope. Let me ask you this morning, how's your peace? Is your world in an uproar? Frustrated? Are you feeling the weight of all the darkness around us? Still striving over your own plans that have been upended, your own proposals that are not working out so well? <laughs> Read on, verse 11. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it's a conspiracy. He <laughs> could say that to us today. You're not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then why do you put a mask on when you step off the stage, pastor? God is our fear, and we should fear nothing else. So then, what do you do? I put the mask on, by the way, not for fear of man at all. I'm not afraid of getting coronavirus. I'm not saying I want it, and I'm not saying I'm impervious to it. I'm just not afraid of it. So what do you wear the mask for? I'm not afraid of disease. I mean, I'm struggling with one right now. Don't worry, it's not catching. But I'm not afraid of these things. God's got a plan, and my life is in that plan, and when my life here ends, it's all the better. So it's not an issue of fear. Listen, we are living in days right now of extreme opinion, polarization, I mean, to the point of acrimonious division. It's really amazing to me. We've talked about this a bit over the months, but... But to have something like this happen, so, so little a thing, and I, I'm not talking about the pandemic, I, I know it's a big deal, but, but so little a thing is things that are being required and asked of us, and, and yet, boy, so divided. How is a believer in Jesus Christ to respond? Stand up and shake the fist? Cry, it's a conspiracy? It's the Lord whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. Let me just give you a couple of things I think worth considering right now and how we treat others and how we handle this season. First of all, Philippians chapter four, verse five, which reads, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. King James translates that, and by the way, correctly, gentle spirit is case. And case in the Greek means Moderation let your moderation be known to all men. Don't go to the extreme. In this season, whether politically or personally or medically, don't go to the extreme. Let your moderation be known to all men. And then Paul says in Philippians 4:6, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Such a beautiful encouragement in Philippians 4 and Philippians 4, five through eight, man, that's how you live the season right now. Paul goes on into verse eight after sharing these things to give a list of things to dwell on. Not limited by time or circumstance. Things that followers of Jesus, disciples, should and can dwell on. And what's the very first thing he says? Whatever is true. Anyone else having a hard time knowing what's really true right now? I mean, I, I'm, I'm hearing extremes. I'm watching the news. I have personal political bent. I have personal, I'm, I'm leaning to the left here. That doesn't mean I lean left. I have personal political bent. And yet, it does not matter, the news channel, I'm these days sitting back going, huh, I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. I'm not sure what to believe. I'm not sure how to take it. Whatever is true. This is true. This is true. When you don't know what to believe, you go here. You take the word of God. Because the word is always true. You can count on God to be honest and genuine and upright and forthright and truthful. And so the word of God is the best place. The greatest comfort in this season for me has been going to the word and finding the depth of truth here and knowing, hey, don't call it a conspiracy. Regard the Lord as holy. Fear the Lord. Don't worry about anything else. I read that and thank God for it. Whatever is true. Followers of Jesus in these ancient time, or anxious times. He is calling us to be a people of peace in moderation, in thankful prayer, focusing on whatever is true. And by the way, one more thing. Hebrews 13.1 says, let love of the brethren continue. That's primary. Love Prayer, thanksgiving, moderation, the truth of the word of God, that's how you navigate. That's how you're gonna see your way through this season and come out the other side, whether at home with Jesus or walking on into the world for a bit longer. That's up to the Lord. But this is the way to do it. Verse 14, continuing on, then he shall become a sanctuary. And that word sanctuary is used to describe the holy of holies. He shall become your safest place. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike, and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, and then they will fall and be broken, and they will even be snared and caught. Matthew 21, Jesus referring back to this speaking of Israel says, he who falls on this stone, that is the stone of Messiah, the stone of Emmanuel, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and truly Israel was broken. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Well, who's that? The nations of this world. In the judgment of this world. How do you know that? Because in in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Do you remember all the way back in Daniel chapter two what happened? That he had this dream of this glorious statue and the statue represented the mighty nations of the world, his nation and those that would come. And at the end of his dream, this stone not cut out by human hands comes out of the heavens, comes flying down and smashes the statue into dust on whomever it falls. It will scatter him like dust. And he's speaking of all those who stand in opposition to Emmanuel, stand in opposition to God, the stone will fall on you and you will be dust. But again, speaking of Israel, Romans chapter nine, verse 32, Paul said, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it, as it is written here in Isaiah, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. First Peter chapter two, verse eight, they stumble because they're disobedient To the word, whatever is true. Whatever is true, think on these things. Obedience to the word will keep you from stumbling. Peter says, to this doom, they were also appointed. God knew this was gonna happen. So we see these prophetic pictures taking place all around us, both historically, but we see it taking place right now. People stumbling over the word of the truth. People stubbing their toe, as it were, on the stone of Emmanuel, not recognizing who Jesus is. And so uh, stumbling and bumbling through life and in the darkness, groping around with no hope. Verse 16, he says, bind up the testimony and seal the law, note this, among my disciples. And again, that's how disciples can know and discern whatever is true. You bind up the testimony. To bind up means to safeguard. Safeguard the testimony. Keep it close, near and dear to your heart. To seal here. He says seal the law. The word seal is to secure it. Safeguard the testimony. Secure the law. That's Isaiah's way of saying cling to the word of God. In fact, skip down and look at verse 20 real quickly. He'll say in just a moment, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. I spoke a few minutes ago about the artificiality of of our lights in here. We flip a switch, the, the electricity sparks, we have lights overhead, but they're artificial. These are not real light. The real light would be in the dawn, the natural light that comes from the sun created by God. And he says, you want real light, true light? You got to go to the law and the testimony. Anyone not speaking from here doesn't have light, is not speaking truth. Along with moderation, thankful prayer, whatever is true, that is this word, and love. There's one more thing here, verse 17. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, I will even look eagerly for him. Look for the Lord. How are we gonna get through this nasty, horrible 2020? Everybody's blaming 2020. 2020 is just a number, folks. It's not like the year woke up January 1st and said, let's make it nasty for people. There's no power in that. I will wait for the Lord. How are you gonna get through? Not just a year or two years, but a lifetime. How are you gonna get through? Luke 2.25, I love this picture. Old Shimon is there waiting in the temple courts. A man in Jerusalem whose name was Shimon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. By the way, you wanna know how you can know if the Holy Spirit is upon a person? if they're looking for the consolation of Israel. If they're looking for the comfort. By the way, that word consolation is paraklesin, where we get the word parakletos, which is the helper, which is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he's looking and he's waiting for the comfort to be made known to him. He'll say in a moment it was made known to him. The Spirit revealed to him that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. So he's looking, he's looking for Messiah to come and that's how you know. If someone's walking in the spirit, they're looking for Messiah to come. Second Timothy 4, 8, Paul said, in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And I see it in some of your eyes. The moment I mentioned the rapture of the church, the moment I mentioned Jesus uh, making a place for us right now in his father's house, Anytime we discuss the end and and Jesus coming to get us, I see your eyes light up. Man, you're looking for, you're loving his appearing. And John says in 1 John 3, verse two, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. That's the point, man, fix your eyes on Jesus' moderation, thankful prayer, whatever is true, love of the brethren, and keeping watch for the coming of Jesus. It's very simple how to get through the darkness. We'll continue, verse 18. Behold, Isaiah says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. You've heard of PKs, pastor's kids? Isaiah had PK's pro- prophet's kids. And his kids were for signs. Literally, Isaiah says, in fact, back earlier in the chapter, he mentions that the Lord says, name your firstborn son, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Can you imagine having that name? Mahar Shalal Hashbaz! Dinner time. <laughs> I mean, that would get old really fast. He was named specifically as a prophetic name. And all Isaiah's children would be so. The Lord has given me these children for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Interesting. But get this. The Hebrew pastor comes along and says, actually, it really wasn't Isaiah and his kids who was talked about. Hebrews 2.11, speaking of Jesus, he said, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, quoting this. What the Hebrew pastor says is that Isaiah, by the spirit of Christ, was actually speaking the words of Christ. That is The Hebrew pastor quotes Isaiah, but credits Yeshua. Jesus said this, listen to it again. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders. And the Hebrew pastor says, that is Jesus talking. Jesus? Wait, wait, but hey, he's gotta be mistaken. He's just making application. It's not a correct interpretation of the word of God. The Hebrew pastor says, no, 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 no. It wasn't Isaiah speaking, it was Jesus who said that. Well, oh, it's gotta be a biblical error, right? Somewhere there in Hebrews? No, Peter reminds us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that it was the spirit of Christ speaking through the prophets bringing the messianic messages that they simply spoke as they heard. Isaiah, the most messianic of all the messianic prophets, whether he knew it or not at the time, Isaiah, Isaiah was naming Emmanuel's children. Who are they? John 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of, of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God, God's children. I and the children he's given me, Jesus says, are for signs and wonders. Hebrews two fourteen says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What does this mean? Listen, what this means is the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ are to be signs in these times you are a sign, follower of Jesus. He says, I and the children who are given to me are for signs, you're a sign. You are a walking sign and wonder for the king in this time. How so? How does that even work? Wait, do I have to go to Bible college? Hang on. By faith in Jesus, we are to be signs, walking, talking signs of what? Of freedom and of release from the slavery of sin. We are to walk, showing the world we are no longer bound by these things. Your very salvation is a sign to the lost. Walking in that salvation, embracing that truth, joyfully by the Spirit of the Lord, we who live by moderation and with thankful prayer, even in the darkest of days, saying whatever is true, We who continue to love the brethren, who are looking eagerly for his return, not trusting in the things of this world. That's how we're signs, even in this day. What was Israel's sin? Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Originally, that was supposed to be Israel. It was passed over to Jesus, who became the light of the world, the perfect Jew. But God originally said, I want you to be a light to the nations. But Israel shut down, closed in, refused to be that life for anyone but themselves. What was their great sin at this point? Not trusting in the Lord, they were dialing into the psychic friends network. Look at verse 19. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living Who are we consulting to form our opinions today? Who are you listening to? What voice is directing your behavior? And by the way, a really good way to tell if that voice is directing you correctly is what is the behavior? Is the voice leading you into rebellion? That's not good. Is the voice leading you into division? That's not the right one to listen to. Is the voice leading you into fear. Pay no attention. It's as bad as dialing up a psychic or getting your palm read. And by the way, the people of Israel, they were doing that, going to others who would mediate their thinking instead of just going directly to the Lord and to his truth. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6 says, as for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists, to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. And by the way, I cut out a bunch of stuff in my notes right here. Just talking about the spiritism and the and mediums and palm reading and, and all of the, the New Age uh, philosophy and spirituality, which is still very much alive. In fact, it's growing by leaps and bounds in our country. We live in a very spiritual nation, not a very Christian nation. Everything from horoscopes to visiting palm readers, people just eat it up. Fortune cookies, ooh, this is what's happening to me today. Who are you listening to? Who are you paying attention to and how is that affecting the way that you are living? If you are listening to anyone other than the Lord, you're buying into a lie. And the darkness deepens. And as it deepens, now as then, there's only one place to find the light. And again, in verse 20, we're told, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Danny tells me this morning he had trouble getting down the stairs because the lights were all off. You know, as he was leaving the house early. I had a little trip and fall because the lights, I'm sorry to tell everybody, Danny, I don't know where you are right now, but I don't think he's in here, so it's okay. The light to my path is the word. 2 Peter 1.19, one of my favorite verses, we have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. You know why the world is getting darker? It's very simple. They do not speak according to this word. You speak according to this word, you have light and truth and understanding. But if you don't speak according to this word, if you're in conflict with this word, you go into darkness. And by the way, that's not an accusation. That's just true. That's just the way of it. Verse 21, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward and both are taking place. People are cursing their kings and their leaders and their governors and their presidents and people are cursing God. Verse 22, then they will look to the earth. Oh, let's look to the earth, earth day. Let's, let's make a Green New Deal, that'll save us. Let's sign back up for the Paris Accords, that's what we need. They will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. Ain't gonna find your answer in this world, folks. And they will be driven away into darkness. We are currently living in the darkest time of the year in Washington State, right? This is when it's like, you know, If we get sun, it's around one o'clock in the afternoon. Might peep out for an hour or so and then it's dark again. And I just read this last week actually, Seattle was named the most depressed city in the nation. Literally, they they did a little survey, and Seattle was number one most depressed place in the entire nation. But add on top of that, the weight of the sicknesses and the shutdowns and the social separations, and it's just getting so dark. Things are getting heavier and heavier. And my brother Jake put it this way. I thought this was a really good explanation of kind of the weight of this season. When things started out and everything started to shut down and and we were really fed an awful lot of fear from the government about where we can go and what we can do and what's going to happen to us, And, and Everybody felt that weight, right? Back in March, April timeframe, there there was a weight. It was, ooh. And it hadn't gone away. Well, the weight hasn't gotten any heavier, but it sure feels heavier. And the way Jake described it is you got a, a, you know, 200 pounds of barbell on your shoulders and you can just stand there for a few minutes and it's not getting heavier. It's still 200 pounds, but it feels heavier the longer you hold it. And that has been this season. The longer we have to wait, the longer we have to put up with things the way they are, the weight gets heavier. It's the same weight that it was six months ago, but it's heavier now because we've been holding it up for longer. How dark is this world? How tense and distressed and gloomy and fearful and anguished and now we're ready to join George Bailey at Martini's Bar. Not for a drink, but to join him in prayer as he said, dear Father, in heaven, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, God. As I was studying, it struck me that this morning's teaching is very much like It's a Wonderful Life because the bulk of the teaching is the backstory of the climactic ending. First time I saw It's a Wonderful Life, I'm halfway in the movie going, when are we gonna get back to the point of this thing? Because you go all the way back to childhood and you just follow this guy's entire life story all the way up till you get to the real story, the whole point, which is on Christmas Eve. Until then, it's really not a Christmas movie. And that's kind of our teaching, there's all this backstory. And I'll tell you where this started. I wanted to bring to you Isaiah nine, verses six and seven, which is two of the most consummate messianic prophecies that we have. And I was thinking that, yeah, that's for Christmas Eve. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I'm gonna have to take a long time just to get there for it to really mean what it's supposed to mean. And so even this morning, just to get to chapter nine, you gotta have this backstory, you gotta think it through. We gotta go back to George as a kid, sliding down the hill on a sled and move all the way through to understand the depth of the darkness. And note this, the Jewish people would descend into even deeper darkness over the long centuries from Isaiah until an answer finally came, not Clarence the angel, but Christ the Lord. Luke chapter two, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. And now we're ready, chapter nine, verse one. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious. By way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And with that, Emmanuel prophetically laid claim to the land of his inheritance and his upbringing. Emmanuel, the Spirit of Christ speaking through Isaiah, says, here's where it's going to be. Here's where I'm going. The land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. The other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where I'm headed, Jesus speaks, through Isaiah. The region of his bright ministry. And, And it's very specific. Well, Jesus was born down in Bethlehem, Jerusalem area, six miles outside of Jerusalem, but raised in Nazareth, which is in the southern region of Zebulun, the lower Galilee, they call it today, and then he moved into the upper Galilee, the region of Naphtali, With the message and the power of the kingdom, here comes the bright light, and it's one of the great prophecies of the beginning of his ministry. If you'll just listen to this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 says, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, uh, upon them a light dawned. (coughs) And From that time forward, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prophecy spoken, prophecy fulfilled. Israel's outlook coming into Isaiah chapter 9 was so gloomy. And the seven centuries that passed until Jesus came got even more gloomy for Israel. Ultimately, as I said, the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC, taken into Babylonian captivity and a remnant would make their way back and try to restore and try to rebuild but they would never be what they once were. All the former glory was over with and gone and they were at the, at the whim of nations all around them. You come into the first century and they tried to establish, reestablish some semblance of their own national identity but it was still so pathetic. So gloomy, and it was so dark at that time in the first century that many had trouble believing that this Emmanuel of Isaiah was anything more than a fairy tale. A nice story for another Christmas. Kind of like a lot of people in the world today. It's a nice story. The story of a child born to us to bring peace. Where's the peace? If that's the end of the story, if that's the whole thing, are you kidding me? It's a fairy tale. And that's how people will view it even today. That's how people viewed the coming of Emmanuel in the first century. We even see Nathanael, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, so a good guy. And Philip found Nathaniel, John one forty-five, and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, if you had read the prophecy, you would know that he must come from that region, that he must be from that place. So most had lost sight of the grand prophecy of Isaiah altogether. What Nathaniel should have said when Philip came to him was, Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, the great light of the Galilee. Wow, prophecy fulfilled. I love Philip's response to Nathaniel's doubt. He doesn't try to argue the point. He doesn't unroll the scroll of Isaiah and say, okay, Bible study time. What he does is simply say, come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. See him for yourself. He invites him along. That's, by the way, our message. I and the children that you've given me are for signs for these times. That's us our message of freedom and release from sin and just telling people, come and see, come and see. Can can Jesus really make a difference in your life? Come and see, check him out. For God who said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, come and see. But wait, what happened? What happened when the great light came into the Galilee, began that ministry, began to heal and save and teach and love and show compassion? What happened to that great light that glowed in that deep darkness? They snuffed him out they crucified him. Jesus said in John three nineteen, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That is, you come to the light and your righteousness is his. Listen, the placement of This prophecy, Isaiah chapter nine, verses one and two, the placement of it by Matthew in Matthew chapter four, correct as it is, leaves the prophecy partially fulfilled, only partially fulfilled. As is often the case with Bible prophecy, picking up in verse three, you shall multiply the nation. Well, that didn't happen, did it? You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle, tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Verses three, four, and five have never happened. Did the prophecy fail? No. First two verses, first part of the prophecy, absolutely, the great light came right into the region of Naphtali and Zebulun, came right into the Galilee of the Gentiles, showed up, shone bright, but was snuffed out. So is that the end? Again, my friends, all these things in verses three through five have not happened. But note this, Isaiah is the messianic prophet. He's been called that over and over, the prophet of Messiah, the one who talks about Emmanuel throughout his book, the one who preaches comfort to his people, and among his favorite words in all of his prophecy is the word Simkah. Simcha, which simply means joy, gladness, merriment. But the gladness he speaks of, that he promises will come, when he says, as with the simkah of harvest, as with the gladness of harvest, oh, this is gonna be marvelous when the great light comes. All oh, this, this gladness is yet cloaked in darkness. This gladness has not come. It will only follow a supernaturally fought battle and the battle of Midian is the picture. What was the battle of Midian? Well, do you remember a character by the name of Gideon? Judges chapter seven, that battle, the battle against the Midianites was fought by Gideon and his fantastic army. He had 32,000 men to start. God whittled them down to 300 to fight a Midianite army of 135,000. So just doing the math, Gideon started out with four to one odds. Four of their men for every one of his, but God said, let's make it a little more interesting. And he pared them down to 450 to one odds. Gideon going up against the army of The Midianites. And what happens then? The Lord says, okay, so you got a tight little band. Maybe Gideon's thinking, all right, well, I don't know how we're gonna do this. Maybe it's gonna be like a crack guerrilla squad. Just, you know, arm us, Lord, arm us up. So God gives them shofars, torches, and empty clay pitchers. Go fight. Great. Shofar, show good. And God Trounced Midian, and listen, this is a whole different teaching, but I can't get by without saying this. Think about how he did it. He did it with light in clay pots. You have this treasure in earthen vessels, don't you? Spirit of the Lord. Light in clay pots, and by the way, the blast of a trumpet. And there's gonna be another trumpet sound. And the battle will be won. And the historical comparison is packed with prophetical purpose if you went to, want to go back and read that or study it through. But Emmanuel is going to take place in a supernatural battle that will far outshine anything that ever happened in the battle against Midian. I'll just read it to you. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Sounds like a bride to me. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly amid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshiped his image and those who were, and those, or these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Merry Christmas. But wait a minute, if that's the forecast, if that's how the people in darkness who see a great light shall be multiplied and and increased in gladness, and if that's how he's gonna break the yoke of their burden and the rod of the oppressor, if every boot of the booted and every cloak rolled in blood burning for fuel for the fire, that's how that is gonna happen. Well, if that's the, the, the case, how can Jesus be called the Prince of Peace? Prince of Peace. Oh, the Prince of Peace. The little prince in the manger. That's where all your contemporary Christmas album releasing artists want the baby to stay. In that safe little place where he's no threat. That's that's a picture of peace. a piece. Such a cute little piece. (laughs) Keep him there. means nothing. Might as well watch Rudolph. Except that the child became a son. How can Jesus be called the Prince of Peace if this is what is to come? I'll tell you on Christmas Eve, Eve We're gonna look at that. And by the way, if you've read ahead, stop it. Listen to me. In Isaiah chapter nine, the Lord promises to break the yoke of Israel's burden. Literally to break the staff of From off their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, which Midian and threatening Assyria simply portrayed, were an example of the real thing that is to come. But the prophetic gladness and rejoicing here that Israel will experience, you can know and experience right now. Why? Where did the great light dawn? Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles, this very Jewish prophecy. It's Galil Hagoyim in the Hebrew, which means the circuit of the nations. The great light will dawn on the Galilee of the Gentiles first. Have you seen the light? do you know who the great light is? Is he Lord and Savior of your life? Then you can experience, even now, in all this darkness, Simca, gladness, joy. That's your merry Christmas. That there's hope that comes from the child born in the manger. Man, if you're bearing burdens on your shoulders today, if there's stress on your back, a rod of oppression over you, listen, verse six, a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And we've seen the first half of that verse happen. The child was born to us. Jesus came into the world. Luke 1.35, as Gabriel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The child is born to us, the Son given to us, and truly he came as that child. That child is Jesus. Mild in the manger, humble in the house of Joseph and Mary, non-threatening Nazarene who came into the world in very dark and gloomy times. But Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So the child was born in the Saint Nick of time. (laughs) Galatians chapter four, verse four, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law and we might receive the adoption as sons. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The child was born, the son given to Israel, yes, but but first to Galilee of the Gentiles, first to the circuit of the nations and the people indeed saw a great light And so for you and for me this Christmas, we can join Paul, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, and say, thank God for his indescribable gift. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Emmanuel, who is our hope in the darkness of time. The indescribable gift. Now, what's interesting is Isaiah's gonna go on to describe him in verses six and seven, but we're gonna have to wait for that until Christmas Eve, Eve, Wednesday night. Be here or tune in. But my friends, here's the joy. The great light of Christ the Lord is coming soon. Brighter than before, by the way, in the fullness of times, guaranteed. Until that, be glad. And until that, let me encourage you this morning, live with gentle moderation. Live in thankful prayer. By whatever is true, this word, Let love of the brethren continue. Look eagerly for him and do all of that with gladness. And when people come and see and ask why you're so glad in such dismal times, you just tell them, come and see. Come and see. Father, we thank you for the message this morning. We pray, Lord, that it has prepared and will continue to prepare our hearts for what you want to say this week for what you want us to really experience and truly know. I ask, Lord, that this Christmas week ahead of us, that this holiday season that so many are just depressed about and don't feel as as joyful as usual, Father, would you flood it with your joy? Would you bring us back to the gently flowing waters of Shiloah, to the line of David, to the king of kings, Emmanuel Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that we will celebrate him more this year than we ever have. Find more comfort, more joy, more strength in the very presence of Jesus and the hope, Lord Jesus, of your return this year than we ever have. We look to you, we can't wait for you. And we do pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, come, Prince of Peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.